Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part three of a three-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Session three, the one message church. Fixing our compasses to the North Star. Those of us in this room would most likely be classified as conservative Christians. Whether or not you like the title or not, it's at least better than liberal uh, Christians. And however, one of the things that can easily define a conservative Christian is we know what we believe and we know what we don't believe. And we believe as a as a whole, it's more normal for a conservative Christian to believe that the word of God in text is actually the word of God. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't believe that. But as a conservative Christian, we say, how could you not believe that? That's the basis of faith. I would agree, which is why I'm conservative. However, then we approach the word of God in text, and we all sort of, we agree that it's the word of God, but then we start from a different starting point in how we reason through it. So we have different motivations or different agendas Uh, in the Word of God, to interpret and to understand the Word of God. And so what I would like us to do is I would say, at Ellerslie, our entire goal is not to convert people to a denominational stance. It's to work with the different denominations to bring us back to something that we could say, can we agree that this is the North Star? Let's all fix our compasses to this. Because if we all fix our compasses to this, we may disagree on these points, but we can agree on what matters most. And so fixing our compasses to the North Star, the one message church, if we were going to have one message and we had to forsake all of the messages and we had to bake it down into one singular message, what would it be? Well, here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that the North Star of Scripture is what Paul preached. Paul was a very intelligent man. He was not dim-brained, even though he was considered idiotes. He was an idiot, a fool. He was actually a very, very smart man, And that's proven in his writings. However, he said this, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He baked it down to what I would term the North Star. Did he know more than this? Of course. But this was the centerpiece of his reasoning. He took this as a key, and he stuck it into every scripture. You see, if you can hand off the key, you actually have given what's known as the hermeneutic, the key hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is a key. It's a key for how you unlock the meaning of Scripture. So if you've ever heard of hermeneutics, that's how you teach people to properly handle Scripture and interpret Scripture. But if you have a wrong hermeneutic or a wrong key, eschatology, for instance, and you say, oh, this is the key, this is what all Scripture is about, and you try and stick that in every Scripture, you make Scripture say something it doesn't mean to say. So someone who has an agenda that is side to Paul's agenda, to what I would say is the Bible's agenda, the 24 seats We're focused on one singular thing. And I would say it this way. The lamb that was slain. That is the center point. That is the midst, in the midst of the throne. We call it the center of God's entire kingdom. 
So if you're going to reason properly, you want to get to the center and work outward. You don't want to miss the center. And so Paul says, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus, the most basic tool for rightly handling the word. The word of God is, in fact, Jesus. So if you want to rightly handle the word of God, doesn't it make sense that your key would be Jesus? Everything in scripture pertains to Christ. He is the key to unlock the mystery. The strange magnetic pull away from center. Don't be duped. You know, what I'm saying is so basic, and because we're in a message about it, it's so obvious. But what we deal with in the conservative realm is a pull. It's a constant pull away from that which is center. Beware lest anyone cheat you, says Paul, through philosophy and empty deceit, deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, the only thing that matters is that which is according to Christ, that which reasons from Christ, that which lives from Christ. So don't be cheated, says Paul, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So theology only makes sense when you study Jesus, because in him is the fullness of the Godhead. He's the revelatory device. He's called the Word of God. And so as a result, when you approach the Word of God, you better have this key. And Paul says, don't let it be cheated from you. But he doesn't just say it once. He says it over and over again. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But he says the substance is of Christ. Don't get distracted with all these things that are pulling us away to actually practice a Judaism instead of a Christianity. The law was there to lead us to Jesus. However, when you have Jesus, make sure you recognize that he is the substance of it all. You have Jesus, you actually are fulfilling all that which is in the law because he fulfilled it. His righteousness is the only form of righteousness you can actually wear. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, says Paul, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from what? From the simplicity that is in Christ. Simplicity can be defined as singularity of focus. There is a singularity of focus that we as believers have upon Jesus and him crucified. That's our reasoning point. That's where we live. Now, Paul is saying he's concerned. He fears lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve. How did the serpent deceive Eve? Come on. There's some other fruit in the garden. But I'm supposed to stay focused here, uh, O serpent. Yeah, but God doesn't want you to know this. Or the other parts of the church don't realize this is a lost doctrine. This is a lost secret. This is a lost mystery. You can have knowledge. What's the tree called? The knowledge of good and evil. It's a bait towards knowledge. We as conservatives fall for it all the time. Wrong. And we're biting into things that are taking us off course. God says, here is the focus. What does Paul say? Think on these things. When you use your mind, you think on these things. Adding to the sacred stack of Bibles. Beware the books set on top. So I've been reading quite a few different things on the Chinese house church movement. And one of the interesting things that I came across in the last two weeks was a statement of the, under, the underground, the house church movement in China, was actually unified. There was only one church. There was no denominational splits. And they began to get connected with Western church, which, by the way, is us. 
And there were some great-hearted Western believers that began to smuggle Bibles into China. And it massively helped the Chinese church. And so years and years of progressing, the Chinese church is multiplying and growing strong. And then it went through a splintering season where it began to shatter and fall apart. What happened? Well, the Chinese leaders will tell us it's the Western church. They would bring sacks of Bibles, and the top of the stacks, the different denominations would stick their special books, which would help clarify that if you really are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you'd speak in tongues, that women aren't allowed to teach in the church. These would be the top books. And so all the leaders were reading them. They must be important. And what happened is suddenly you had 12 different denominational splinters within the Chinese underground. What has happened to us? That we would make sub-peripheral points, that which we stick on the top of the book of the Bibles. If you want to help the church of Jesus Christ, beware what you stick on top. Here's what I'm going to recommend we do. We give the word of God, and we stick the word of God on top. It's a novel idea, I know. I do not want to diminish the fact that there are varying points of view and perspectives and doctrine, and there are wrong thoughts. There really are. Really bad thoughts out there. However, I want us to be corrected by the word of God and not by other books. So let's make sure that we keep the simplicity that is in Christ and be not cheated, be not deluded. The seven great ology baits. Ology, you see the little dash in front of it. This is a science, a field of study, a body, body of knowledge. And so you've heard of biology. And so it's a study of physical things. Uh, and so ology, we're going to talk about seven great ology baits. How does the enemy bait us away? These are big, huge fruits sitting on the tree. Cosmology, which is the study of origin and beginnings. How did the world come to be? Eschatology, the study of what is to come, the ending. By the way, every single one of these things is in Scripture, and it has value. However, if it takes us away from the center, it actually can become an enemy in our soul. Theology, the study of all things pertaining to God. How could theology become a bad thing? Well, some of us in this room can testify of how it can become a bad thing. You can know all about theology and not know Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ makes it very clear. I never knew you. You see, the key is Christ. If you miss Christ, you miss the whole kit and caboodle. We will not miss Christ as the church, which is why a message like this is necessary to rally us to the center, to the cross afresh. It is not about these things, though these things have place And we are responsible as the church for how we handle them. But may they not be the center. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Sabbatology, the study of the Sabbath and the particular day for honoring this rest. Etiquetology, the study of moral excellence and appropriate behavior. I I made up that one. Powerology, I made up that one too. The study of endowment and the expected evidences of indwelling grace. For instance, are you supposed to speak in tongues? What about prophecy? Is it for today? These are the splinter points of the church, okay? Any of you that have spent time in the church know this, and some of you are even uncomfortable with me putting up on the, that, don't even consider that part of historic or conservative Christianity. That doesn't even belong in there. And then someone else would rise up, hey, who are you to talk? Have you ever read scripture? Let's go through Corinthians together. You see, this is what has divided the church. It's so funny because you have people that are very solid in their position on head coverings, which by the way is in scripture, and usually they don't speak in tongues. And then you have a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 14, tongues. And you have some people that are like, yeah, see, look at what it says in Scripture. Well, they're like a couple chapters apart. And yet usually the people that speak in tongues don't have a head covering. 
what's going on here? We got a weird world we live in. You see, we're splintering. We're taking our eyes off of the center. There's nothing that I'm, I'm not going to condemn tongues, and I'm also not going to condemn a head coverings. You see, the center is not either of those. It's Jesus. So the ology of all ologies. So is there something we are supposed to study? Is there a body of knowledge we are supposed to know? You see, there's a vehicle of revelation. And what is it revealing? It's revealing God the Father in and through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so there is our study. It is a person. Our study is a person. When you're married, it's not just knowing details about your spouse. I'll tell you. Five, four. Five, four. Write it down. Uh, what color eyes do you have? Well, they're sort of a hazel. All right, a hazel eyes. You see, you could know facts and data about your spouse. That doesn't mean you know them. You see, knowing them is being able to hear their heart, understand them. When they're going through trial, you know exactly what they're going through and you know how to assist them. You see, knowing Christ is a very intimate thing and it's not done through mental assent. So here's what science I want you to become an expert in. Christ crossology. I just made up the word. The quest to intimately know Jesus Christ, to be found in him, to win him, to comprehend, understand, and intimately behold his work, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to deliberately make Jesus and him crucified, the great centerpiece of reasoning and thought, the magnetic fixation of all philosophical deduction, and the central doctrine and interpretive key to all life and truth. Uh, so we don't need to call it Christ, or cross, Christ crossology. Is that what I called it? We can call it Christianity. That's what Christianity is. Entire givenness to the person of Jesus, entire focus on the person of Jesus, entire allegiance and obedience to the will of Jesus, entire desire to be intimately close to Jesus, and entire confidence in the nature and work of Jesus. Paul's singular focus. Listen to Philippians. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of... You could, you could fill in the gap there. The knowledge of what? Well, let's read this sentence again. Let's imagine that you couldn't just see what is on the screen here. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of. We could stick in eschatology, soteriology. I mean, there's some good stuff, very intriguing stuff out there. And Paul could count it all loss to gain it. No. He says, I, for the loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He didn't suffer the loss of all things for a doctrine. He suffered it for a person. He suffered it for the Malach Yahweh the one who revealed the Father. He suffered for the man who is also God, who suffered and died for him, known as Jesus. So for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So let's look at what Paul says. That I may win Christ. This is his great central focus. It matches with what he says. He's determined not to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then he says here, that I may win Christ, that I may be found in him, that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. There's Paul the apostle right there. That I may know him. This is what moved Paul to give up everything to count all of his achievements as dung for the surpassing greatness that he found in the person of Jesus Christ. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Handling the seven ologies, making sure Christ retains his position of preeminence. So I want to give you a starter package. In our basic training at Ellerslie, we don't go through the ologies in a specific way. We deal with all of them because you can't help but teach scripture and deal with ologies. You're constantly dealing with these things. However, we don't make them the focus. We make Christ the focus. And as a result, you're gaining a tool belt for how to properly address these issues. So I want to give you sort of a head start. Making sure Christ retains his position of preeminence. The entire Bible is about a person, Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is not just about a theology. It's not about a doctrine. It's about a person. The doctrine is how we are going to live out that which is center, which is the person of Jesus Christ. You see, how do you apprehend Jesus? How do you understand Jesus? How do you make him known? This is doctrine. And so it is specific in Scripture, but if you lose the point of it, the whole purpose of it, what do you have? You argue over what it's about. I'm not here to just reveal Jesus. I'm here to reveal this knowledge, this, this packet of knowledge that I have, this mystery that has been hidden. That isn't the mystery that God hid. Number one, cosmology, the study of origin and beginnings. I actually think, if you were to talk to me, I would say that understanding creation and Jesus Christ as creator is one of the most important things you could ever know in your Christianity. It's a foundation point for your faith. And the enemy goes after this, doesn't he? The whole ridiculous argument over evolution. I'm sure there'd be certain people who'd be like, ridiculous, excuse me? Yeah, ridiculous. It's completely contrary to the word of God. The word of God in text, the word of God in person. That's what I believe. So the study of origin and beginnings. If you begin to study these things, for instance, I spent a lot of my life studying this. I've gone on archaeological digs to prove that the old strata layers that they used to say, which were the basis for the geological column for evolution, were wrong. And I have gone through all sorts of great adventures in this, and it can suck you in like a vacuum cleaner. And you can make your life all about arguments of this. And yet, should we not know those arguments? Should we not know that Jesus is creator? Should we not know the beginnings? No, no, no. It's just that we must know that the beginning is a person. It's not a bunch of data and facts, and it's not an argument. It's a person. So it's a study of a person. Cosmology is a study of Jesus, the creator. Who knows creation? It's Jesus. Well, how would you know creation then? Well, study Jesus in text. That's called the Word of God. Study the Word of God and you'll actually understand creation. It's that simple. So your foundation is a person. If you start to lose sight of the person in your study of cosmology, you've gotten off track. Don't be beguiled. As the serpent beguiled Eve, do not get off course from your study of the person. Jesus, you see, he's the creator of all things. He's the upholder of all things. He's the beginning of the creation of God. Now, eschatology. This is the study of what is to come, the ending. There's all sorts of names for the different fields and the different pools of thought. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, uh, amillennial. You have preterist. You have these different terms, and everyone's like, oh, well, what are you talking about? Well, we're not going to go into that. The study of what is to come, the ending. So if you are going to study eschatology properly, understand that the scriptures are a picture of Jesus who reveals the Father. Who are you supposed to see when you study the end? You're supposed to see a person. Not a bunch of facts, not a bunch of data. It's the study of a person, Jesus, the Almighty, which is to come. Who's to come? What's going to happen in the future? More of Jesus. You see, he is the beginning, and he is the end. He's the first, and he's the last. He's the alpha. He's the omega. You study the beginning, you're studying him. You're studying the end, you're studying him. 
The Almighty which is and which was and which is to come, the beginning and the ending, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Theology, the study of all things pertaining to God. I know it sounds great. However, what if you have the wrong God? If you don't have the basis of the Word of God, you're going to end up with a very weird theology. You see, a lot of people have a blended, mixed religion. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, but they also believe that Muhammad was a valid prophet sent from God. And that the words of you know, the Koran are inspired. Well, we have issues. You see, the Bible itself clarifies truth. It clarifies the one source of salvation. It clarifies how the Bible itself is constructed. It clarifies what is not true and what is true. And we find that all centered around a person. And how you treat Jesus is very, very important. So, if you're going to study theology, you're going to study all things pertaining to God, can you get a greater deposit of God than Jesus Christ? Isn't the fullness of God dwelling in Him? So if you want to know the fullness of God, I'm going to give you a hint. Study Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of the deity. He is Yahweh. He is the I Am. Study Him, you'll know the Father. And who's the one that's helping you study Him? The Holy Spirit. It's the study of a person. Jesus, the image of the invisible God. He's the Word, the Word that was with God, the Word that was God. He is the Word of God, the Word of life, the Word that was made flesh, the image of God, the image of the invisible God, the express image of His person, the brightness of His glory. Soteriology, the study of salvation. This has been one of probably the biggest dividing points in Christian history. Shed blood over this issue. Christians cannot coexist if they don't agree on this one, according to those that make this their dying point. It's the study of salvation. You oftentimes would understand it as Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's how we appropriate the grace of God. And some people say, well, we must choose or we must turn and believe. In other words, people say you couldn't believe unless you were saved first. In other words, you were regenerated first to even believe. Some of you are like, what in the world? And then you have, you know, atonement. Was the shed blood of Jesus for everyone or is it just for a select few? Eternal security. These are all issues of soteriology. And what I would say is most people, especially men, get distracted with soteriology and lose sight of Jesus. I'm going to give you a basic first grade or how about kindergarten, maybe preschool primer on salvation. Here it is. It's the study of a person. Jesus, the man of salvation. Who saves you? Jesus. If you miss that, you miss the whole thing. And yet, many people will stumble over this and try and determine all the nuance of it and argue and bicker over these issues instead of seeing Jesus. So imagine we're in a cold basement and we can't see. We don't even know that there is an upstairs. And it's warm and it's full of light. Oh, it's really nice. This is chilly. In fact, chilly is just the norm for us, so we don't even complain about it. And we have pleasures down here in this basement, but something begins to change inside of us, and we begin to realize that we're cold. We begin to realize the darkness around us, and the chill is creeping over us in an ever-increasing manner. How do you know that you're chilly? How do you know that you're surrounded by darkness? God. There's only one who can save. There's only one who can reveal these things to you. God is revealing himself to you. Now, Imagine that a light cracks. There's a door on the other side of the room, and a light cracks open, and light shines in. Before that point, you had no concept of the dimension of the room. You didn't know where to go to find salvation. Now suddenly you see light. Who showed you the light? Jesus. See, a lot of Christians will argue over how you saw the light. Well, you didn't see the light. God showed you the light. 
It's like, what? You see, God is the light. He's also the door. The only way for you to be saved is because God saves. It's a person that saves. We put our confidence in him, and we are saved. You can save me, Jesus. That's as simple as it is, and even a preschooler can understand that. And so, you find yourself walking towards the door. Well, are you saying, Eric, that the man walked to the door? I mean, because a man can't come to the door without God carrying him to the door. All I know is that I came to the door. Praise God. How I got there, I actually don't care. I'm just happy I got there. And then there's stairs that go up. Oh, and we have more debates over those stairs than anything else. Okay, Eric, how did you get up those stairs? Well, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, it was it in, what is it, an escalator? Is that what it's called? Uh, was it stairs where you had to use your own ability to walk? Was it an escalator or were you carried? I don't know. I just know I'm feeling the warmth and the light of the upstairs. Praise God, who saved me? Jesus. I'll give him all the credit. Who made that door and who shined the light? Who built those stairs? He did. The master craftsman from Nazareth. He built the way unto the Father. And there's no other way to the Father but by him. If we could get past our arguments and get to the point that we can actually reason together as Christians, though we may differ on some of the subtleties and how they affect us, could we be Christians together and live in the upstairs unified? Who's the savior of the world? It's not five points. It's Jesus. A savior, which is Christ the Lord, Messiah, the way, the door, the rock of my salvation. I wish we could put in the stairs, the captain of salvation, a horn of salvation, the author and finisher of faith. Who begins the faith? He does. Who finishes it? He does. Who gets the credit? He does. Who saves? It's a person. May we not lose sight of the person that is salvation, the person that is our righteousness. This is not something we do. This is something he does. He did it, and he continues to do it. That is what we rejoice in. He saves my redemption. Sabbatology, the study of the Sabbath and the particular day for honoring the rest. Yes, it has splintered many a Christian. It's the study of a person. You want to understand the Sabbath? Get to know Jesus. He is the Sabbath made flesh. Jesus, the rest of God. The Lord of the Sabbath, a rest. God's rest. That rest. You see, when you enter into Christ, you're entering into the rest. The rest of God. It's the fulfillment of that law. That's how we honor the creator who is Christ is by entering into that rest. When he rests, we rest. The resting place. Etiquetology. A study of moral excellence and appropriate behavior. Every single one of these, if you are familiar with them, you could say, Eric, that's an oversimplistic statement. Well, that's called the simplicity that is in Christ. However, I know that you can make it more complicated. What I want to forewarn you is if you begin to study these things, make sure you reason from the center and never lose sight of it. So etiquetology, is it good to be moral? Well, yes, it is. But the study of morality is the study of a person. You see, Jesus is the righteousness of God. A lot of us sort of take on that thing of like, what's appropriate as a Christian to do? And so whether it's, you know, how we dress or how we speak or, you know, if we smoke cigarettes or not, if we cuss, 
These things have a value in our Christian life because we are manifesting the glory of God in and, our, in and through our behavior. Every single one of these has value that we're going through. However, if you attempt to change the morality of your life and you lose sight of the fact that he is your righteousness, that he is the source of righteousness, that he is the only way a man can be righteous, guess what? You will have missed the whole point. And you will have a legalistic life that is attempting to please God in and through your own efforts, as opposed to pleasing God through his effort, known as grace, given to us in and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So he's the king of righteousness. So he's your morality right there. He's my righteousness, my sanctification. He's the one that makes me likened unto himself. He's a refiner's fire, fuller's soap. You want conviction? Get close to him. He'll refine you real quick. He's my helper, my physician, my healer, my refiner, my purifier. Powerology, the study of endowment and the expected evidences of indwelling grace. What's very interesting about the environment of Ellerslie is we have probably a split right down the middle of those that come from more of the charismatic or Pentecostal uh, heritage and those that come from the opposite. In other words, the two can't get along. They can't coexist. I don't know if you've been around America today, but one side critiques and challenges the other as if they're of the devil. Both sides do that. And it's an extremely difficult thing to know how to navigate when it comes to a message like this. How, does it matter? Does the, does the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, it's in the Bible. Are we supposed to ignore it? Oh, that causes controversy. I can't talk about that. It's in the Bible. It's the Word of God. Let us not be sheepish and afraid of the Word of God. However, some people have made the Holy Spirit the center. And you could say, what's wrong with that? He's God. The Holy Spirit himself doesn't want to be made the center. That's the problem. If the Holy Spirit is present, who will you see? Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest Jesus. So when you build a church just on the Holy Spirit, what you've done is you've robbed the very Holy Spirit of his job description. It's like, hey, people, I'm not doing this. The Holy Spirit shows Jesus. Well, shows him in two ways. He shows him in the word of God. You know, the Holy Spirit will never disagree with the word of God. And he shows the Son, the Word of God made flesh. That's what the Holy Spirit does. If the Holy Spirit is present, you know it because you're convicted, because you're not like the Son. And he conforms you and molds you and shapes you into the image of the Son. And if he's going to give you power, what's it going to be to do? To show the Son. It's the same power he has. What's he doing? He's revealing Jesus, just as Jesus reveals the Father. You see, we are given power to reveal Jesus. And yes, that can come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Dead bodies raised, but it can also come in the form of a thought life being managed and governed by the Holy Spirit so that we do not think that thought. And most of us fail to recognize the work of power in the small reformation of the individual life, and we seek it somewhere else. I remember one person saying it this way. We are not supposed to follow signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are supposed to follow us. Huh. Well said. The study of endowment and the expected evidences of indwelling grace. Listen to this. Brace yourselves. It's the study of a person. The Jesus, the gift of God. You know, a lot of people would say the primary gift is speaking in tongues. Well, I've heard it many times. In fact, there's a whole denomination that is set up on the premise that if you're truly baptized with the Holy Spirit, you'll speak in tongues, which has created quite a conflagration in the modern church. Tongues is biblical. However... I would argue and say the primary evidence of God at large within you is <clears throat> Jesus. 
Jesus is the primary evidence. You will know my disciples, not by the fact that they speak in tongues, but the fact that they love one another. They, he will evidence, we will evidence Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the evidence of the church triumphant. And so may we not lose sight of the center in dealing with Scripture. May we not sever the body based on reasonable argument. There are things many of us have seen the Holy Spirit trampled on. We've seen abuses and fleshly abuses, and as a result, we consider it all wrong. Actually, that's just the flesh. We need you know, the same thing with soteriology. Some of you have been hit over the head hard with the book of the five uh, points of something. And as a result, you have a tendency maybe to shy away from it and say, I don't, I don't know about that. Don't shy away from pursuing the word of God with a clear conscience and a clear mind before, with the Holy Spirit leading you to reveal Jesus Christ just because someone has abused it before you. Who is the gift of God? Jesus. Who's his unspeakable gift? It's Jesus. You see, the great gift isn't tongues, prophecy. It's Jesus. That's not to diminish tongues and prophecy. It's to say, let's make sure our focus is where it should be, and we reason outward from there. Christ's crossology. The quest to intimately know Jesus Christ, to be found in him, to win him, to comprehend, understand, and intimately behold his work, to know the power of his resurrection, and to know the fellowship of his sufferings, to deliberately make Jesus and him crucified the great centerpiece of reasoning and thought, the magnetic fixation of all philosophical deduction and, central, and the central doctrine and interpretive key to all life and truth. Christianity is all about a person, Jesus Christ. The Bible is all about a person named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is all about revealing the fullness and the fulfillment of the word of God. His life showed the word of God. And so when we read him, when we see him, when we understand him, who do we see? We see the word of God, but what does the word of God reveal? It reveals Yahweh, the I am that I am. You see, he's the messenger Yahweh. He is the one that makes visible that which is invisible. And it's called the word of God. Jesus, the great beauty, fairer than the children of men, the chiefest among 10,000, the bridegroom, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, a bundle of myrrh, a cluster of henna blooms. Yea, thou art altogether lovely, Jesus. Thou art, all, thou art my beloved and my friend. You see, this is the center point. This is the fixation of scripture. It's Jesus. Who's altogether lovely? He is. He is the fairest among 10,000. He is the one that can break the seals. He's the only one that can do it. You want to know the word of God? Come to Jesus. Jesus, the great <clears throat> everything. Lord over all, my all in all, he that filleth all in all. Those are pretty big statements. You see, he is all in all. Jesus Christ and him crucified, the great focus, message, and meditation of the believer. Some people have said, Eric, you spend too much time focused on Jesus, which I think is one of the most ironic statements you could ever make. Because I honor the Father and the Holy Spirit by doing as they ask me to do, and that is to glorify the Son, to believe in Jesus Christ. You see, that is the mechanism by which I will see the Father and by which I agree with the Holy Spirit. I please the Holy Spirit. You see, you quench the Holy Spirit when you don't make Jesus the center. But I please the Holy Spirit and walk in agreement with him when I make Jesus Christ the focal point. And when I make Jesus Christ the focal point, I see the Father, and the Father is revealed. In the end, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is the next line? Unto the glory 
of the Father. That's how we as the church work. We bend our knee now. And it's under the glory of the Father by making Jesus Christ Lord and Master over this existence. He is, in fact, the head of the church. He is the one this is about. We listen to him. We take our heed and our orders from the word of God. And the spirit of God is in perfect agreement with that word and will never violate it. And the spirit of God is revealing to us Jesus, the son, the word. And when we see that word, we see the father. Jesus Christ and him crucified, the great focus, message, and meditation of the believer. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the focus of our faith. It is the power of God. It's the catalyst of our understanding. It's the wisdom of God. It's the object of our love and affection. It's the wellspring of our joy. It's the source of our peace. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the root of every doctrine. Any doctrine that does not have Jesus and him crucified as its root is a false doctrine. Everything is about Jesus and him crucified. Every message is about Jesus, exalting him, glorifying him, and increasing our faith in him. Every message flows out of the exaltation of him, his work and the purchase of his work. Every discussion is about Jesus or increases our faith in his work. This is how we live as Christians. We all are determining to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It does not mean that we know nothing. It means that this is the root from which all our reasoning, all our discussions, all our preaching, all our teaching comes forth. It's that high hill of Calvary. That is where the river flows into our life. And if we're going to interpret the Old Testament, if we're going to sit down with the Ethiopian Jew, what do we need? We need a key. When we sit down with him, we stick it into Isaiah and we turn it and we say, it's talking about Jesus. And from that scripture, we preach Jesus. Every doctrine stems from the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the victory of Jesus, and everything that is not born out of this faith focus on Jesus and his great cross work, increasing the understanding of it, the adoration of him, and the ever-increasing faith in him and his work is off-center and a distraction from the center. Charles Spurgeon. This is a great quote. The first time I gave Christophany quite a few years ago, uh, Ben had found this quote, and it's a, it's a story of a young pastor who has been trained and groomed by an older man, a Uh, a seasoned veteran. You can just picture gray hair. And he's now preaching. The young man is preaching, and guess who's in the audience? The old preacher. And so this is at the end of the man giving his sermon, and this is the dialogue. Upon finishing his sermon, the young man went to the old pastor to ask him how he had done. Well, what do you think of my sermon, sir? He asked. A very poor sermon indeed, he said. A poor sermon, said the young man. It took me a long time to study it. I, no doubt of it, Why then do you say it was poor? Did you not think my explanation of the text to be accurate? Oh, yes, said the old preacher. Very correct indeed. Well, then why do you say it is a poor sermon? Didn't you think the metaphors were appropriate and the arguments conclusive? Yes, they were very good as far as that goes, but still it was a very poor sermon. Will you tell me why you think it is a poor sermon? Because, he said, there was no Christ in it. Well, said the young man, Christ was not in the text. We are not to be preaching Christ always. We must preach what is in the text. So the old man said, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Ah, said the old preacher. And so from every text in scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures that is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along the road towards the great metropolis, Christ. And he said, I've never yet found a text that had no such road. I will make a road, and I would go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master, for a sermon is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill unless there is a savor of Christ in it. Listen to this. Summing up the work of the early church, and daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach 
Jesus Christ. What did they teach and preach? Jesus Christ. Spurgeon's first sermon in the tabernacle. So the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Tabernacle, one of the most famous preaching environments in all of history. Charles Spurgeon is 27 years old, and this is what he said in his inaugural statements. It appears that the one subject upon which men preached in the apostolic age was Jesus Christ. The tendency of man, if left alone, is continually to go further and further from God, and the church of God itself is no exception to the general rule. For the first few years, during and after the apostolic era, Christ Jesus was preached. But gradually the church departed from the central point and began rather to preach ceremonials and church offices than the person of their Lord. So it has been in these modern times we also have fallen into the same error, at least to a degree, and have gone from preaching Christ to preaching doctrines about Christ, inferences which may be drawn from his life or definitions which may be gathered from his discourses. In the days of Paul, it was not difficult at once, in one word, to give the sum and substance of the current theology. It was Christ Jesus. Had you asked any one of those disciples what he believed, he would have replied, I believe Christ. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. If I am asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible itself, Old and New Testament, reveals to us something. It is a messenger of Yahweh. It reveals to us the invisible. The invisible has made, been made visible to us in and through the Word of God. Jesus becomes the Word of God made flesh, and He dwells among us. He lives a sinless life. He dies a horrible, cruel death upon a cross, is buried and resurrects. And he says, it is better for you that I go to be with the Father. And he ascends to be with the Father and he gives us something. He gives us himself. And it's called the great mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations. It's called Christ in us. The hope of glory. Christ has come to dwell in us. The Malach Yahweh, the theophonic messenger, the one who reveals the invisible, has come to dwell within us. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that glorified Christ, is the very one he has sent to animate Christ within us. So that once again, the invisible would be made visible. Now, in and through the church. We're called the church of Jesus Christ, of which he is our head. And the church, in the strangest way, the great epiphany to all of us, is that we are meant to be a theophany, a revelation of the invisible. But very specifically, we are called to be a, theoph or a Christophany, we are to reveal Christ. We are to be made image bearers, those that bear the image of Jesus Christ. And when people see us, they will see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, they will be acquainted with the Father. And that is our great mission, to show Jesus, to preach Jesus. And in and through that, it's the one way and the only way to the Father. Thank you so much for listening to part three of this three-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. 
If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.